Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is my guest this week. He is, of course, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, a Hall of Famer, a six-time MVP, a 19-time All-Star, the master of the skyhook. Sends it to Kareem. Skyhook up and good. Lakers win. A key part of the legendary Showtime-era Lakers and an NBA veteran who, believe it or not, made one three-point shot in his entire career. Shoot a three-pointer, oh, It's three, and good! There's the first one of his life. Did they count at three? I didn't see the official. I didn't either. Since retiring from basketball, Abdul-Jabbar has shown he has talent and skill far outside the paint. He's written books, columns, even worked as a writer for Veronica Mars. He's acted on screen opposite Bruce Lee and Leslie Nielsen. In short, he is a very interesting guy. Lately, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has been lending his voice on the documentary front. Last year, he narrated a film on the History Channel called Black Patriots, Heroes of the Revolution, which earned him an Emmy nomination. This year, he's back with another History Channel doc, Fight the Power, the movements that changed America. It just premiered. Here's a bit of it. In this clip, Abdul-Jabbar talks about his memory of the lynching of Emmett Till. I'd seen so many examples of violence against, uh, you know, black people. It, it was not a shock. I was eight years old when Emmett Till got murdered. And I couldn't understand why that happened. I asked my parents. They didn't have the words to explain it to me. So from that point forward, I was just looking for the answers Why are people who look like me at risk in America? What did we do? The protests over the George Floyd killing has forced us to to deal with a a real problem that uh, needs to be corrected. And uh, I think that urgency really will will serve us in in a positive way. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. It's nice to talk to you. I like your... UCLA hat there. I'm glad that you fly the colors all these years later. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a it's a lifelong commitment, I suppose. It can be, you know, if especially if you uh if you took it seriously. So I kind of did. So <laughs> <laughs> I find myself wondering and it was something that I hadn't thought about before I was preparing to interview you. But if you're athletic and you're as tall as you are, um like every force in your life is pushing you towards playing basketball. And I wonder if you ever as a kid or as an adolescent, or even when you were a young adult, thought seriously, I'm going to do something else with my life. Well, you know, when I started athletics, I I wanted to play baseball. I was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. (laughs) So... (laughs) But, uh, you know, basketball, everything I, I, that I did with basketball just was uh, seemed to come easier. Basketball never was too big of a challenge. So, you know, I, I stuck with that. But my, my first love was baseball, yeah. Did you ever think about not being a professional athlete? I mean, like as a career goal? Yeah, I thought maybe I would teach history or something like that. 
but uh, by the time I was uh, in tenth grade, you know, basketball was paying bills and opening up opportunities. So I stuck with that. How did you decide to go to UCLA? Well, my uh, junior and senior year in high school, UCLA won the NC2A tournament. And um, they didn't have real big teams. You know, they had on uh, John Wooden's very first uh, NC2A championship team, the tallest guy on the starting team was six foot six. So it wasn't about height, it was about other things. And um, I thought I had those skills. Uh, pretty much nailed down and I figured I, that I should play for, for Coach Wooden. I've never regretted it. When you got to college, the world was kind of turning upside down and it was happening in places like UCLA. My father was a, was a couple years older than you and went to UC Berkeley. And it took me years to understand. And he, he was in the service right out of high school. So um, he was in college at a similar time to you. It took me years to understand how much was going on <laughs> on his campus when he was going to college. <laughs> like I was doing improv when I was in college <laughs> and, you know, he was organizing, you know what I mean? And it wasn't just that, you know, the civil rights movement was happening. You know, his, he was involved in the, in the veterans anti-war movement. His best friend was involved in the independent living movement. Um, you know, all these things were happening at once. Was that something that you had already seen when you were a teenager living in New York and felt comfortable with? Or was it something that um, turned your world upside down as it was, you know, the rest of the world at the time? Well, I, I think the, the issue was that it got more and more intense as the 60s went on, you know, and, wasn't too bad in 64, but by 1967, it was very intense. And, you know, people in the streets uh, didn't have the uh, Democratic Convention in 1968, Tet Offensive. I don't know how we survived 1968. Look at all that happened. You had been raised a Catholic. Were you a faithful Catholic? No, I got tired of it when I realized the role that the Catholic Church played in the slave trade. So, you know, I gave that up pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I found that uh, Islam made a lot of sense to me. I still believed in one supreme being, and uh, Islam seemed to make sense. I mean, when you were going to church as a kid, were you on board? Like, did you— Yeah, you, well, you know, the, the nuns told you— so-and-so-and-so, you better believe it, you know. <laughs> That's what it was about. And then, you know, uh, going to high school, you start to see how religion really doesn't play a big factor in, in people's lives. You know, many kids see that during their high school years and become cynical. Did you feel cynical? Of course, you know, because uh, the things that— uh, make for a moral life, make you treat people like they're human beings. And uh, in America, that often depended on the color of your skin. So, uh, you know, there was something that, that wasn't adding up there. Were there particular moments when that not adding up became very clear to you, or, or was it mostly just a, an accretion of pains? 
Well, no, there, there are a lot of moments where it was very obvious. And then there was, you know, the daily grind. I mean, just the daily insults, uh, the expectation that you do not, you do not see yourself in, in, in the same position as your other fellow citizens who have different color skin. Uh, I mean, that's, that's something that wears on you. That must be particularly true when there is an expectation that you are going to go out and perform for everybody. That you know you're you're the you're the, you were the star of your teams when you were in high school as well, and like you can't not show up for the game, you know. And mm -hmm. you have to look at all those people in the stand and think, which of these people. Which of these people cares about me as a human being, and which of them sees me as a, you know, a, a subject? Yeah, I had to deal with that uh, a lot, and uh, Coach Wooden started to notice a few things about the way I was treated, and it really helped him understand um, what Black Americans have to deal with. Uh, I don't think uh, prior to coaching me that he he got it as to you know how bad it could be, so. Uh, that's something he, he often spoke to me about throughout our friendship. What's, what's something in, in particular that, that he talked to you about? Well, just that um, he, didn't, he did not believe in bigotry or anything like that. Coach wouldn't play professional uh, basketball and, uh, for a team in Indianapolis. And he, he talked to me one time. He, he went to Chicago. They played the Globetrotters in Chicago. And he said uh, he was going to go to the train station and, and get back home to Indianapolis after the game. But uh, they had it at the Chicago Savoy. He said the food was fantastic. And they had uh, Cab Calloway's band. So he, he and his wife had to stay <laughs> till 3 a.m. And they got home a day late. But they had a wonderful time. Uh, you know, Coach Wooden was like that. You know, he, he, he uh, watched uh, Negro... Negro League Baseball, and uh, was friends with some of the guys on the teams. He was that kind of guy. And um, he learned a lot uh, just watching what I had to deal with. Um, there'd be times when, you know, I'd sign autographs after a game on my way to the bus so we could go to the hotel. And it was fine as long as I was signing autographs. And then when I had to get on the bus, uh, some of the parents uh, would start using the N-word and think, saying that I was uppity. Uh, but no, I was getting on the bus like I was supposed to. Things like that um, really got through to him and uh, made him uh, a lot more aware of uh, what the civil rights movement was all about. And you also bear the burden of, you know, with, with somebody like Coach John Wooden, one of the most legendary coaches in basketball history for whom you played at UCLA, even a person of goodwill needs your help <laughs> to understand your experience um, in an authentic way, right? Like this is a guy who's stayed late to see Cab Calloway, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he gets it. Yeah. Well, he, he got it after a while. You know, he, let's see. The first time he it started to get through to him had to do when I was a freshman. Uh, it was after the season. He took me out to dinner one night because he just wanted to get to know me and you know figure out who I was. And we went to a, a restaurant, had a nice dinner. And uh, on our way out, um, we were waiting for our, our, our car to be brought up. And there was a, 
an, an elderly lady, a gray-haired elderly lady, came up to uh, Coach Wooden and, and said, excuse me, how, how tall is he? And Coach Wooden told her how tall I was. And then she's using the N-word, she said, I never seen one that tall. And then walked away. And it it, it really shocked Coach Wooden. I mean, he, he was like, what? And um, it really affected me. You know, I was stung by it. It was a slap in the face. And Coach Wooden wanted to uh, somehow make it not be as bad as it was. And, he, you know, he was trying to find words to, to deal with it, and he couldn't. It, it was ugly. And um, I think that, that really was the beginning of uh, him getting a better insight into the lives of black Americans. I think to me the most sickening part of that story, in a way, is that this person could only address you through a white intermediary. <laughs> Yeah, she she wouldn't uh, talk to me. Uh, you know, <laughs> too dangerous. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it would involve acknowledging your humanity. <laughs> yeah, right? like yeah. it would again make you less than make you more than a subject. You know what I mean? Exactly. So I just turned forty years old. I remember you playing for the Lakers very vividly. You were in your forties by then. This is right before I retired. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I remember when you retired. And I wonder why you chose to play as long as you chose to play. You, you know, 10 years in, or 12 years in, or 14 years in, you could have retired and, you know, you still would have been one of the greatest basketball players of all time. You still would have, you know, been able to make a great living for the rest of your life. Um so on and so forth. So what drew you back every year? Well, for me, I, I enjoyed the challenge of trying to be the, uh, the best center in the NBA. You know, and I, that's what I shot for every year. And uh, it enabled me to be very pertinent to my team and they needed me. And to be able to make that kind of money into your 40s is is a, is a good thing, you know. It enables you to retire uh, and not have to actually have any serious worries because hopefully if you've saved your money and paid your taxes and invested wisely, you don't have anything to worry about. There's a point in one's life and even in your life where there's no way that you can be the best center in the NBA anymore. right. I mean, when you were 38 or 39, you were still a great player, but it's tough for a 39-year-old to be the best player in the NBA. You played till you were 42, I think. Yeah, and uh, we won world championships when I was 40 and 41. We went back-to-back and almost uh, did a three-peat, but uh, in my last year for the playoffs, uh, our starting guards, uh, Magic Johnson and Byron Scott, were hurt. So we couldn't be healthy in the finals, and we got swept. But uh, it was worth it, you know. It was nice to go out like that. Did you enjoy being uh, an elder statesman the last few years of your career? I didn't like thinking of myself in those terms, but, you know, I had to accept it. And uh, <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> I mean, one of the things about it is I feel like uh, 
you've always had the temperament of an elder statesman. I was watching an interview that you, a video interview with the AP that you did sitting in the Bucks Arena in Milwaukee um, in, I think it was 1974 or something like that. And I thought, well, this man is nothing if not statesmanlike. Like this is not, I don't know if I would rely on him to go into the clubhouse and get everyone pumped. You have a, an interesting philosophy. I wonder if you would share that with us. <laughs> well, exactly. You're going to have to be a little bit more specific. Uh, I understand that, uh, for example, it, uh, you're a very private person. You enjoy your privacy. Yeah, I do. Uh, I find, well, actually, it's uh, really necessary because, uh, you know, I spend all my professional life in the public and... Uh, more or less, I become like public property, and uh, kind of need to some time to yourself just to keep things in perspective. You you had the temperament of a of a thoughtful middle aged man as a as a twenty six year old or whatever it was sitting on that bench with, with a man putting a microphone in your face. Well, you know, it, on the court, you can do it with your actions, and you know, people don't have to listen to your words; they can see what you what you're doing and how you're doing it and they want to contribute. And that, you know, that that's a type of leadership. And you have emotional leaders, you know, like someone like uh, Magic Johnson or, or Chris Paul, you know. So uh, when you get leadership from so many sources like that, you, you, you have a better team. What did you learn from Magic Johnson when he joined the team as a six foot nine or six foot 10 inch point guard who had been this college phenomenon and you know you by then were you were already well into your career you you were even well into your lakers career what did you learn from seeing him play and playing with him well uh, i think uh, it's best exemplified in the very first uh, regular season game we had we played uh, the clippers in san diego and uh, we won the game because i hit a I hit a hook shot at the at the buzzer which gave us the win. And it was Magic's first regular season win, and he, he went crazy. He, you know, he's jumping on me. And, and Magic Johnson is out there celebrating like they just won the NCAA championship. Hotline Hundley is out there. We've got Magic Man and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Abdul-Jabbar just throwing a tremendous hook shot. Hugging me and screaming and everything, and I was like, wow. So we get in the locker room, and I go over to Magic, and you know, I say, listen, Magic, we got... We got 81 more games, man. If, if we're at these, this type of emotional level for every game, uh, we're not going to make it past Christmas. And, you know, he kind of calmed down and was kind of, you know, a little bit uh, maybe embarrassed. But for me, there was also a lesson in that, in that I, I should take the time to enjoy the roses as we go by and enjoy the victories and enjoy the moments. And, you know, he made it possible for me to do that because in two ways, uh, his personality and the fact that uh, him being on the team meant that we won. And uh, when you're winning, you can be a, a lot more uh, congenial and approachable <laughs> when people aren't asking you, <laughs> how come the Lakers aren't losing? Why aren't you doing your job? You know, so there you go. I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about the two of you being a team, and there were many other great Lakers during that time, but you know, both you and Magic Johnson are among the greatest basketball players of all time. Um, like one of the most interesting things about it is that 
um, Magic Johnson's exuberance is what people understand about him more than anything else, right? You know, he has a beautiful smile and you can see it on a television broadcast of a basketball game immediately, right? Mm-hmm. And you are a thoughtful and shy man um, who played basketball very seriously, you know, and that read immediately. And I thought, what an odd experience it must be for you as a, I don't know how old you were when, when the Lakers drafted Magic, like 30 or 32 or something like that. Um, to have this man like step in and you're like, well, he's an extraordinary basketball player. Sure. But he just, people read him so differently. You know what I mean? Like just even when he's on the court, not forget when he's talking to a fan or talking to a reporter or whatever, like he just reads differently. It must've been an odd experience for you as somebody who had been playing for so long and, and done so, so kind of in, in such a considered manner. It was, it was interesting. It was, uh, I started thinking about things like generation gap and stuff like that. <laughs> but Ma- Magic, uh, you know, he was into music. You know, I'm into jazz. Uh, it was just a, a, a generational thing. It, it didn't necessarily mean, mean that we were separated by anything. You know, it's just we were connected in, in in odd ways, but it was real. It's interesting that you mentioned that generation gap. I don't think I had thought of it in those terms, but you're someone who remembers as a child the news about Emmett Till. You're someone who was in college, you know, who was a, a high school student during the, uh, and a middle school student during the civil rights movement who was in college, you know, when the world turned over somebody who's just five or 10 years younger than you has a very different experience of the world. Yeah. That, that was amazing to me, you know, cause, uh, I go through the eighties and uh, I'm playing with guys raised in the South and they'd gone to integrated schools. Uh, they hadn't seen the, uh, colored restroom or the colored drinking fountain. I had, you know, I had, I had to use them. You know, my mom, uh, my mom was from North Carolina. She took me down there a couple of times, uh, you know, when I was a child. So, uh, you know, it's something that was not unfamiliar to me. And, um, you know, my perspective on things was a little bit different. We've got so much more to get into with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Still to come, he played for most of his career while suffering from migraine headaches, which is, and I cannot, I cannot overstate this, unimaginably difficult. We'll talk about how he got through it after the break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Fidelity Wealth Management. VP Dylan Sanders shares why it's important to understand clients' values. People quantify dreams differently. So it's essential to be able to sit with a client and listen and ask questions and just begin to understand what it is in their life that they want to pursue and help them create a roadmap to get there. To learn more, go to fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. An officer pins a 16-year-old to the ground and punches out his teeth. 
But are there any consequences for the cop? For the first time, we take you inside the secret investigations that show how police protections in California shield officers from accountability. Listen to On Our Watch, a podcast from NPR and KQED. Hi, my name is Graham Clark, and I'm one half of the podcast Stop Podcasting Yourself, a show that we've recorded for many, many years. And uh, at the moment, instead of being in person, we're recording remotely, and uh, you wouldn't even notice. You don't even notice the lag. That's right, Graham. And uh, the great thing about the- this... Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. And- okay, go ahead. And you can listen to us uh, every week on MaximumFun.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Your podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, narrates the new History Channel documentary, Fight the Power, the movements that changed America. It just premiered on the History Channel. Let's get back into our conversation. When I watched the History Channel documentary, I had assumed that you were the narrator of the show, because that's how you were built. And you were the narrator of the show. But there's also a fair bit of kind of your personal testimony in the documentary. There are these interspersed moments of, of your experience, your personal experience. Did you, was that part of the deal when you signed up? Well, you know, it, I thought it would, it went very well because uh, Deborah Morales, my co-executive producer, figured that uh, she could handle this, this stuff in the script and that I could handle the narration and my own personal take on my own experiences. So that, you know, I, I, I wasn't afraid to do that. Why do you think you wanted that to be part of it? Well, because um, it's neat to see how it affected someone who was involved and who, who was personally, I was personally involved in the 1968 Olympics. You know, I, I went and demonstrated when Dr. King was assassinated. I was on cam- campus, so, when, you know, there, there was a, uh, some bad blood between two different uh, groups, and it came to a head on the UCLA campus. Uh, there was a group called Us, and then the Black Panthers. And they had a shootout. It uh, <laughs> there was some very scary moments in all of this. Forgive me if this is a dumb question, but as a guy who has lived his life being one or two heads taller than almost everybody around you, except possibly when you're on the team plane. Did you feel extra worried going out into a demonstration or a protest or a march, knowing that like you were physically conspicuous and vulnerable in a way that was unusual? Well, yeah, I certainly worried about that. Uh, the very first time I experienced uh, street violence, you know, I was a, um, a junior, between my junior and senior year in high school, and I, I experienced the Harlem riot. And, uh, you know, I said, geez, I'm too tall to be out here with, you know, stray <laughs> shots going off. And um, I got my butt on home after that and, uh, you know, had a little bit more caution 
about me because uh, when you get out in, in, in a circumstance like that, you realize how vulnerable you are. So uh, I, I think you're absolutely right that, uh, you know, that got through to me <laughs> pretty quickly. One of the moments in the documentary that most affected me was when you talked about Matthew Shepard, um, the gay man who was tortured and killed in the late 1990s. Have you been able to, over the course of these decades, synthesize your own experiences of bias and uh, oppression and pain with understanding of folks who suffer those things for, for other reasons? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what, what you mentioned uh, just now about Matthew Shepard really was the, was the issue uh, because when I saw, you know, I, I read the article about, about his murder and to me it was, it was very plain that, uh, that, that could have been a black guy that uh, some drunks just said, let's, let's harass the black guy. It could have been him. It, it could have been a Native American. It could have been a Hispanic person. It could have been an Asian person. Uh, and they would have ended up just as dead for the same idiotic reasons. So, um, yeah, it really helped me understand what the real issues are and uh, why uh, marginalized groups uh, have to understand that uh, we're all in this together. I want to ask you about something completely different. You've suffered from migraine headaches in your life. Was that something that you always dealt with? Did you get migraines as a kid? Yeah, I got migraines as a kid. Uh, like from the fourth grade on. And uh, finally, they uh, figured out that uh, I needed to do a sleep study, and they found out that I wasn't processing enough oxygen when I slept. And uh, that, that was a problem. So um, I, I started uh, doing oxygen at various times and um, had, had some surgery that uh, opened up my breath passage so, so it could be open at night, and uh, I haven't had uh, that problem ever since then. How old were you when, you when they figured that out? That was like right after I retired. I was in my early 40s. I mean, that's a big deal to go through an entire 20-year professional basketball career dealing with migraine how, how frequent were how frequent were the headaches <laughs> no you, the, I'm, I'm laughing now because the doctor the doctor said hey listen you can't breathe at night how did you play basketball for 20 years <laughs> i mean that's the truth but that's not even yeah. talking about the pain i mean i i suffer from migraine as well and like i can barely keep it together to host a public radio show and you i'll know, tell you one have... thing that that will help you right now get an oxygen tank and a mask, as soon as you feel it coming on, start doing just pure oxygen, it'll, it'll chase it. It will chase the, the headache away. I'm not a doctor, but try it. You'll see. And you can get a prescription for oxygen from, from your doctor very easily. It's not a big deal. If you want, I'll come over to your house because I know how to work the tanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it, Kareem. I live in L.A. <laughs> Hey, listen, it's serious, man, and it, it will seriously help you if you get uh, oxygen therapy. Um, you know, you, you may need surgery or something, but the, the oxygen helps. Absolutely. I'm not lying. You must have had to play with headaches. I had, uh, let me see, one uh, 
playoff series against Philly in 83. I was, I was coping with it. And then in 84, just for one game. And then uh, right there in 1990 is when I had this sleep study done. And I haven't, I haven't had any problems since then. Did the headaches scare you? They can be pretty scary. Yeah, they can. But, you know, if you know the process, you, you know when they're coming on. And you can, like, go lay down. Or, you know, intense sunlight can, can make it worse. I see you nodding your head, so you know. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, try the try the oxygen. It's it's great. It's not going to uh, interrupt your life in in any way, except you know when you start to get a headache and you put the mask on, you'll feel a lot better. Were you afraid when you had quadruple bypass surgery? Yeah, that was scary. Um, and it, it's funny that. Dr. Sheeman, um, my doctor told me that uh, the only reason I was alive was because of a, a, a lifetime of exercise. Uh, you know, I had uh, arterial blockages. My heart was very healthy, but the arteries leading to them were, were full of junk, and uh, they had to be uh, reamed out, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> a quick roto-rooter, and you're on your way. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what kind of exercise do you do in your life now? I mean, you're in your early mid seventies now. Yeah, I, I still jump rope a little bit, and I walk, I swim. I like to, I like to hear that you're jumping rope out there. Yeah, jump, jumping rope really works. You know, it, it's uh, I, I use a, a weighted jump rope, and it's upper and lower body at the same time, and, and really keeps your heart strong. I want to tell you that as soon as you said that you jump rope, I immediately imagined you doing double dutch. 100% you were doing double dutch as soon as you said that. I was never able to do double dutch because there was no one tall enough to turn for me. <laughs> the, the ropes would hit me in the head, you know, so I need some seven-foot guys to turn. <laughs> I looked at some pictures in an old Sports Illustrated of, of you dancing roller disco and I was like, yes, yeah. that is what's up. That is what I want to see. I want to see Kareem doing roller disco. Roller boogie was fun. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It's like disco, but you get to go around the the, uh, the rink there and mess with your friends. And uh, they played disco music. It was great. It's it a nice evening out. You get some exercise and have a few laughs. I enjoyed it a lot. The... the um, I heard that the uh, rink that I used to go to, uh, Scooters, has opened up again. Really? Yeah. I'm a midnight rollaway man. That's up there in, I guess it's Glendale or Burbank. Okay. It's right on the edge of LA. Okay, yeah. Well, you go, is, is there a rink up there? Yeah, I, I took, took, take my kids sometimes. I mean, my experience okay. of roller disco was watching it in the park in San Francisco because mm -hmm. there were guys that, you know, had started in 1977 or whatever and uh it was their life you know it was this was 2002 these guys are still out there in their 70s that was a lot of fun Norman. i read in one of these old articles that i was looking at there was a little detail that i loved seeing above and beyond the picture of you doing roller disco and that was you know how in these profile articles they'll say like oh you know Cameron Diaz said as she was 
munching on her crab rangoon or whatever, right? There's these like little things sprinkled in there. And one of the little things in this old article about you from, I guess it must've been the early eighties was that you were flipping through a copy of heavy metal magazine. Heavy metal was like a sci-fi and fantasy magazine. It wasn't about rock music. It was like a sci-fi. Metal, metal Erlant. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's probably most famous today for its uh, pictures of bodacious babes riding dragons or whatever on the in in uh, in bondage gear on the cover. Um, there was a really great artist that uh, did uh, a number of. Uh, cartoon stories for them named uh, Mobius. I really liked his work. I, I, I enjoyed uh, his stories and stuff. There was a character he had called Arzak, some guy that flew around on a pterodactyl. <laughs> it's, it was really good uh, science fiction stuff. My, my dad was into science fiction. That, that, that's how I got into it. Do you still pick up new things to, uh, for lack of a better word, nerd out about? Like, yeah. are there still things that that you you read a magazine? You're like, oh, this is my new thing. I'm I'm deep on this. Well, I, I'm a very strong believer in the adage that life is short, but it's real wide. So um, I want to see all things I can see before I have to check out. You know, what's your new jam, Kareem? What what's the thing that you're about to uh, talk to a librarian about getting you some books about? Jeez, uh, right now I'm do, I'm doing research uh, for one of the stories that I want to do for a movie, a documentary, because there's a, a dramatic treatment of the Underground Railroad that, that's on right now that's uh, very popular and getting really great reviews. And uh, I'd like to get the opportunity to give all the facts behind the, uh, behind the entertainment because uh, people uh, are, are really getting into it and... Uh, the Underground Railroad is something that uh, we won. You know, black Americans won that one. There's no question. So um, I, I really enjoy um, the facts about it. And um, I think it, it, it's something that uh, all Americans can, can rally around because uh, it ended up in, in moving us in a good direction. Kareem, have you ever uh, done a pilgrimage to Mecca? Have you ever gone on the Hajj? I've gone on Umrah, which is the lesser pilgrimage, because uh, I was never free during Hajj. So I've, I've gone uh, twice on the lesser pilgrimage, which is when you go to Mecca, and it's not the month of Hajj. Have you thought about doing it during Hajj? Yeah, yeah. I'd maybe take uh, some of my children and stuff if they want to go. Do your kids practice? Do they go to? Did they go to mosque with you when you were a kid? When you were when they were kids? I used to I used to take my boys, but you know they've grown away from it. I haven't been very strict on them because I, I wanted them to have a moral foundation. I got good kids; they're morally okay. If they don't go to the mosque every Friday, I'm not going to get upset. Kareem Abdul Jabbar, I'm so grateful to you for taking all this time to talk to me. What a pleasure and an honor it is to get to get to speak with you. Well, it's been a pleasure, and you can tell your child that uh, she can hang now. <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, his new documentary, Fight the Power, the Movements that Changed America, is airing on the History Channel. You can check their website for local airtimes or watch it in the History Channel app. 
That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Here at my house, my daughter has just informed me she's working on a new film. It's called Creepy Tales About Movie Studios, and it's based on the book by Grace Thorne. That's my daughter's name. We'll see how that comes out. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. Watch out for The Go Team's new record just around the corner. You can keep up with Bullseye on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all our interviews in those venues. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 